Geico presents Sharing versus Oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippin shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining me this morning on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have the privilege of talking with two great guests, and I appreciate both of them knocking the do off the first tee with me. First up here in a moment, I'm going to have five-time winner Paul Stankowski joining me, and amongst Paul's five wins was a 1996 Bell South Classic uh, here just outside of Atlanta in Marietta. Overall, he, he won that event over a host of great, uh, great players, including Brandel Chambly in a playoff, and David Duval being one of the top players in the world at that time also in that field. So uh, we're uh, looking forward to having Paul here with us. Like I say, he'll join us in just a moment. A little later, I'll be joined by a multi-time author, golf historian, equipment expert, and the host of Fairways of Life, the Fairways of Life show on the uh, PGA Tour channel on Sirius XM. Matt Adams is going to be here, so we have a wonderful show in store for you this morning. But before we get started, we want to kick off the show by saluting our military personnel listening in on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Uh, so many brave uh, veterans laid down their lives to protect us. We are just coming off of the Memorial Day weekend not long ago. So thank you to all of you in the military who protect our freedoms and our liberties every single day. We appreciate you so much. Uh, like I say all the time, if you see a veteran, not only you know over the uh, Veterans Day weekend, uh, please take a second out of your day. Tell them thank you. Thank you for all the things that they do to us for their service to their country and to each and every one of us. We also want to thank those of you who serve in every branch of public service. We truly appreciate all your sacrifices. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz, Stephen Lee, and all the folks at Armed Forces Radio. It's an honor for us to be a part of your network. You can find us uh, by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org and clicking on the sports link that you're going to find in the bottom right-hand side of their homepage or on the radio link that you'll find in the upper right-hand corner. Also, please be sure to give those guys a follow on Twitter at the AFRN, the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me is PGA Tour Pro Paul Stankowski. Let me give you a little background on Paul. He's from Oxnard, California. Started playing golf at the age of eight. He attended the University of Texas at El Paso and turned pro back in 1991. His first pro victory on uh, what's now the Nationwide Tour was a 1996 Nike Louisiana Classic. And then he, he backed that up the following week on the PGA Tour at the Bell South Classic, becoming the only golfer in history to win on the Nationwide Tour and the PGA Tour in back-to-back weeks. Um, like I say, five uh, professional wins. And uh, we are so honored that uh, he has taken time out of his morning to be a part of Next on the Tee. Paul, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. For, uh, for our listeners, Paul, on the Armed Forces Radio Network, your father uh, was an Air Force Master Sergeant, right? Absolutely. How would you find that out? That's pretty interesting. <laughs> yes, he did, uh, he did 21 years in the Air Force. And uh, um, fortunately for me, I didn't have to move around because he retired uh, right before I was born. So I was a retirement baby. Uh, yeah. but my four sisters and brother um, were born all over the world, you know, from France to Bermuda and Pensacola. And, um, yeah, so it was good. But my dad, uh, yeah, he served, and uh, he's 84 now. And, um, yeah, I, my heart uh, goes out to those folks. Um, obviously, Memorial Day was last week, and, and, uh, but we right. celebrate them all the time. And I'm grateful for the service that my dad did and, and for all who served. Absolutely. So, uh, Paul, you know, you, you started playing, you know, the game of golf at age eight. I read what uh, what uh, sparked the love for the game of golf for you. Well, my dad learned uh, how to play in the uh, while he was in the military, and 
my brother is about five years older than I am, and, and he got started when he was about nine. And so, really, I, I was raised in a golfing family. And uh, my, my dad, I think the best, lowest his handicap was, was about a four or five, I believe. Um, and uh, so, I, I, yeah, I grew up with golf. I, it was always on on Saturday and Sunday as a kid growing up. And I would go out and, and uh, watch my dad play. And he surprised me on Easter Sunday back when I was eight years old with uh, – what I thought was going to be a day walking around the golf course with him and my brother, and uh, he surprised me with a set of hand-me-down clubs and a pair of golf shoes, and said, "Let's go tee it." And uh, nice. And I went out. Yeah, I went out that day, and and uh, I knew I was I was hooked, and I shot 75. Wow! Get nine. out of town. First time out. On the front. On the front nine, and then ah. shot 72 <laughs> on the back. Uh, so yeah, I shot 147 that day, and uh, and I was hooked ever since. Nice. So, Paul, how does a kid from Oxnard, California, end up uh, playing his collegiate golf at the University of Texas at El Paso? Well, my brother uh, went to ASU, Arizona State, and um, had a pretty good college career. And, and he was a senior when I was a freshman. So his junior year, um, I guess everybody found out that he had a little brother that, that could play a little bit. And uh, a few people were kind enough to offer me a scholarship. One of those was Cricket Mush at uh, the University of Texas El Paso, and and uh, that's that's how I went. I on my recruiting trip, I didn't know where El Paso was. I knew it was in Texas, but I, I didn't know geographically if it was in South Texas or North Texas or. Uh, but um, so Cricket used to fly us in at nighttime. Um, all the recruits would fly in at night. Uh, just to, um, I mean, it's a beautiful city at night. But uh, he, did, I guess, he didn't want want them to see that Juarez are right next door. Uh, the recruits and I, I didn't even know, and, and um, until I got on campus and looked out over Juarez, and, and just realized in my four years there uh, how how blessed we are in America, um, and to be born here. Obviously, I didn't choose to be born in America, but I'm so grateful I was. And uh, the uh, the school itself was great, a great experience, um, a wonderful culture in El Paso. Uh, met a lot of great people. The weather there is um, fantastic. I love dry heat. I live in Dallas now, so it's not so dry, but, uh, but I loved it there. But, yeah, it was, it was a good place to go to school. Uh, I was able to, to jump right on the team and, and really play for, I think I missed four events during my four years in college. Um, but I was able to jump in and play, and we had a little bit of success early, and, and um, I learned a lot. Yeah, no doubt. I, I read some things on your uh, PGA Tour profile that I found interesting, Paul. It says, your biggest thrill on tour was winning the Bell South and winning your first PGA Tour event. Absolutely understand that. Uh, but talk about you know, the, the week prior, when you won the Nike Louisiana Open that week before. Did, did that give you the confidence that you belonged there and that you could win on tour, which propelled you to, to the Bell South victory? You know, golf, golf is weird. You know, as a kid growing up, I, I didn't uh, – I wasn't a world beater, you know, even through high school, I, I wasn't the best kid in our district. Um, I was very competitive. Um, and like I said, I was thankful enough to get a scholarship. And in, in college, I, I did win twice. I won here in Dallas at the Red River Classic and I won our conference championship. But, um, you know, I, actually the week after I won Dallas, I, I uh, finished dead last. So, uh, you know, I, I had a very uh, Jekyll and Hyde uh, career as a, as a junior golfer and as a collegiate golfer. And and uh, the when I actually my first when I got on tour in '94, my first three events I missed the cut, uh, two by a shot and one by two shots. And um, I showed up at the Bob Hope Classic as the last alternate in the field, or at least one of the last alternates in the field, and and um, flew in Tuesday night for a Wednesday start and finished sixth. And so my first cut on tour was in 1994. My fourth event finished sixth. And at that point, I knew okay, I can play out here. Um, mm-hmm. It's obviously, uh, you know, finishing sixth at the big stage was a, was a huge boost for me. And, um, and obviously when I won in, in Louisiana, the funny thing was um, I'd missed every cut on the West Coast in 96 and went to Honda and missed the cut and actually didn't get in the Players' Championship because I was playing out of the, the Q School category um, due to the fact that I lost my card by $1,800 in, in 2000 or in 1995, oh. and had to go back to right. key school. And um, so I go to Louisiana. Or actually, the week before that, I went to New Orleans and made the cut. My first tour cut of the year was in early March, I believe, in New Orleans. And um, 
and so the next week was Lafayette, and I went and uh, played just to stay, you know, stay sharp, and and I happened to win the golf tournament. Um, so it wasn't like I was I was uh, hot rolling into into Louisiana right. and ready to rock and roll. I I made one cut, and um, so I, I showed up in Atlanta as an alternate, and uh, ended up getting in on a Wednesday, and and win the tournament there. So the the event in in Lafayette was more of a surprise for me. Uh, although I was really encouraged all year with um, some things that I saw in my game, even though I was missing cuts, I, I left every venue encouraged because I, you know, whether it was my driving or my short game or some part of my iron play, something was looking better, but it just never was coming together. And uh, yeah. I think the key was that I was encouraged. And so in Lafayette, when I won, it was a, um, obviously it was a relief. I'd won a few times on the mini tours, but, um, that was obviously my biggest win at the time, and and uh, so in Atlanta, I wasn't thinking, all right, I've got this. I just was like, oh great, I'm in the tournament. And I was excited, and and uh, right. and going into Sunday, um, I made an eagle putt on Saturday uh, on 18 at Atlanta Country Club, and it was a long one up a tier to a back thing. It was like 50 feet, and I made it for eagle, and that got me into a pairing with Fred Couples, and Fred Couples was my high school hero. I mean, he was. Obviously, I think he was everybody's hero back in in the uh, right. in the '90s. He was the man. He still is the man. But um, and uh, so I was thrilled to death on Sunday to, to be paired with my with Fred Couples. You know, and that was the first time I'd ever um, got paired with him. Might have even been the first time I'd met him. And uh, we're in the second to last group, playing right in front of Tommy Tolles and David Duvall. And uh, you know, I, I, there again, I just kind of went out and played golf. And then at the end. Bramble and I were in a playoffs, and so it's very golf is weird. You know, I've I've had many many a, a tournament in the last 20 years of my career that I've walked into the event thinking, all right, I got this. I'm I'm ready. I'm hitting it good. I'm putting good. I'm thinking good. Everything's good, and I love the course. And then I I'm trunk slamming on Friday. You miss cut. And then I've had events where I've walked in going, I have no clue where it's going. It seems like there's a force field on the pin that's making my balls go the other way. And, and uh, you know, I finished fourth in, in Greenbrier in 2010 that way. I, I, I had no idea where the ball was going all week and finished fourth. So golf's weird. I've never been able to figure it out. I don't think anybody has, maybe except for Tiger. Um, but it's uh, it's a cool game. I'm thankful that, that I got a, ch- a chance to, to live a dream, you know, for quite a long time. And and, uh, and I'm also grateful for the fact that I don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a it's a beating man it's a beat down to have to play against all these young guys that hit the ball forever and uh i hit it short now and just as crooked as i used to so bad combination <laughs> right well winning that bell south lets you claim the last spot into that year's masters what was it like for you when that invitation arrived <laughs> Well, that, that was the first thing I thought of when my putt went into the playoffs, and, and uh, I, I was like, I can't. This is this is just. It's a dream come true. I dreamt of playing there as a kid. I watched every Masters probably from the first time that I even knew what the tournament was. Uh, I would post up there on Saturday and Sunday and and uh, admire and dream. And uh, so I, when I made that putt, I looked at my wife. I hugged her and. And I'm just like, we're going to Augusta. It was just crazy. Um, and to walk the fairways, I, I woke up Monday morning with a kink in my neck, and so I couldn't hit a golf shot. So I didn't play a practice round Monday or Tuesday. Um, I just walked the golf course. And I remember just walking um, in awe, you know, for the first 10 holes and then walking off the 11th tee box. Uh, as I get to the rise in the fairway, I'm looking into my yardage book, and, and I, I happen to, to look up toward the green, and I see the 11th green, and then just to the right in the background, I see the 12th green. And I, I never looked down again. I just was <laughs> I was blown away. I'm like, here it is. This is it. It's the holy grail of, of golf. Yeah. And and, uh, and I, even though I couldn't hit a shot, um, I definitely took it all in. So you got the opportunity to play with Tom Watson, right, at Augusta. What was that experience like for you? Um, well, you know, I talked about Freddie being my, my high school right. hero. Tom Watson was my childhood hero. And uh, right. my good friend my good friend John Gomez, um, who I grew up playing golf with, um, when we would tee it up, he would be Seve and I would be Watson. And 
and we had a blast doing that. And I, I tried to pretend I was him for well, for as long as I can remember. And and on uh, on Saturday, yeah, in '97, the year Tiger won by 376 shots. Is that what it was? 378 <laughs> shots. He won by a lot. Um, right. That year, I played with uh, with. with Tom Watson on on Saturday, and uh, we were toward the back of the bus, uh, near near the lead groups, but obviously well back, and and uh, that was a dream. And I shot 69 that day, and and I think I snipped him by a shot. Um, but there again, it's just I, I'm baffled. I look back at my career, and, and much of it seems like a blur to me, Chris. But um, there are some things that I remember vividly, and and some of the things were, you know, like I say, teeing up with Watson at Augusta. I mean, are you kidding me? I got to do right. that. That's crazy. Um, playing with Fred Couples and winning my first event, that, that's baffling to me. Um, and the ironic thing about my first event, I mentioned earlier in, in our conversation that I had played my first round of golf on Easter Sunday um, when I was eight years old, and, and uh, that win in Atlanta um, paired with Freddie came on Easter Sunday. Um, right. So very just a sweet, sweet moment for me. Um, uh, yeah, obviously East, I'm, I'm a believer, and Easter for me is a special day. But uh, from as a golfer, um, it, it's you know I'll, I'll never forget you know that that's where my start was as a as a golfer was on Easter, and and my first win coming on Easter is, is pretty cool. And, and and you know, getting back to just for a moment about your pairing with Watson. Now you hit one of the most amazing recovery shots I think in Masters history on 15, right? I mean, I, I read some comments <laughs> that Watson had. I, Take me through that. Wow, that was uh, that's funny. That well, yeah, I've got two stories about that. But the, the actual what happened is I hit a two iron in the into the green, and I had a slight, I guess, a little downhill lie, and I hit a two iron to the back pin, back left pin, and and trying to hit a nice high soft one, and I hit a low rocket, and uh, it landed about two thirds on the back of the green, and and went all the way over the green into the water on 16. I didn't know there was water back there. Um, and so it was in the water, and I'd take a drop, and where I was dropping it was obviously there was no rough back then, and, and it was tight, and it was soft, like not not wet enough to be casual water, but it was it was really soft and tight. And I'm looking at this shot, going, I I got absolutely nothing. It's it's <laughs> uh, I, I growing up in California, I didn't know I didn't learn how to bump and run shots because we play, played on Kikuya grass and i'm sure some of the listeners right now who are playing military bases in california um they're uh, they know what kikuya is it's just a it's a spongy weed that the ball doesn't want to bounce through and so i didn't know how to hit bump and runs i had to hit flop shots so instead of bumping a shot into the hill that i've seen a hundred times at the masters on that hole from guys who hit it over the green i chose to throw it up in the air and i took a huge divot and flopped that thing up in the air, landed on the fringe and trickled down to about a foot. And yeah, I think that was that's probably the, the best shot I've ever hit um, under any circumstances as a professional golfer. And uh, it was funny, I was on a on an airplane uh, a year later, and I, I, I had, was flying from Kapalua, or from Maui to Kauai, I believe. And uh, this, uh, it was an Asian guy and his girl were walking down the down the aisle on the airplane and and I'm sitting on the aisle and he looks at me and I can see him staring at me and he looks and he stops and he says in, in the best English he could Paul Stankowski and I said yeah and he says oh he says Massa 15th hole frop shot he's like oh and I was like that's amazing I mean that shot was heard around the world and it was really cool so I I it, it it I just chuckled and I thought wow what a what a crazy what a crazy deal that I get to I get to play a golf and I and people from all over the world saw this this shot that um, you know yeah it was the scariest shot I've ever hit and and uh, it was really cool so that that was a fun moment um, and uh, I mean it's just fun that you bring it up it's crazy that you're a couple of things that you brought up I'm, you, you must do your homework because um, I don't <laughs> I try I, I've never I haven't seen that shot replayed anywhere so I'm like ha. Ah. How do people see this? You know, but uh, anyway, uh, very cool. It's been fun. So now, following your master's appearance, I read that you bought a souvenir glass, filled it with bunker sand, placed a tee and a ball in it because you didn't think you you may ever get back. Is that is that accurate? I'm I'm looking at it right here. I'm in my office right now, and and yeah, it's a it's a clear glass. 
uh, on the front. It's got the Masters, you know, the yellow uh, United States with the flag with the red pin, 1996 on the bottom. It's On the back it says all Masters champions from Horton Smith in 1937 to Ben Crenshaw in 95. And uh, it's all written in green, and, and in it is a bunch of sand and my top flight tour Z Balada 90 compression number one. Wow. With with Stanko written on the side, and uh, what is this little thing here? And the, my little, the pin that they gave me, um, every, when you register, you get a, a number, and my number that year was 76. And uh, so it's a little pin that's sitting here in the glass. It's, it's just a, a reminder. I, I, didn't, I didn't know at that point. I missed the cut quickly. Um, I think I shot 152 or so. And as I was leaving, I, I stopped, and I ran into the into the, the uh the clubhouse and I bought that glass and then I as we were driving away I I uh, stopped the car got out and scooped up some sand from the practice bunker and uh put it in a ziplock and and so I have I have part of it my buddy Brad who lives near 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 me good family friend of ours they uh, he has the other the rest of the sand but uh yeah it's fun I mean it's something that I never knew I'd get back lo and behold the next year you know I had a, a I finished fifth and had a great time but great memories but this is the one thing that that uh yeah, I think it's pretty darn unique. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll tell you how how unique that is. Now, you know, I, I've I've been uh, you know going to Augusta National uh, to the Masters for the practice rounds for 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 several years. It's it's my favorite place on the planet. I'm the guy. I was just over in Augusta this past you know this past week. I'm the guy pressed up against the gate taking pictures of Magnolia Lane, dreaming about the day you know that. You get to walk in there and actually drive down, you know, Magnolia Lane and being a part of it. I'm the guy on the other side of the ropes. But I had a buddy of mine who, uh, we'll just say, allegedly took some uh, bunker sand during a practice round and put it in a Ziploc bag. Now, we read an article a day later uh, from the Augusta Chronicle where a guy got arrested for doing the very same thing, uh, arrested for trespassing, spent the uh, weekend in jail. So, yeah, that's very rare, that bunker's head, Paul. Yeah, well, I didn't know about the arrest thing. I probably wasn't uh, I wasn't thinking clearly, but uh, I'm glad I got away with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One more uh, before we, before we let you go, Paul. I know you've got to run. Um, I read that um, Pebble Beach is your favorite place to play, and St. Andrews is the place you've always wanted to play. Never played St. Andrews, and why Pebble Beach? Yeah, you know Pebble. I think I think the reason for Pebble Beach, well, besides the fact it's just awesome, right? It's beautiful. Right. Those holes, holes number four through ten, are my favorite two hours in golf. I mean, there's no question that if I'm going to spend two hours playing golf, I want to go. I want to play four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Uh, I'd probably linger on number eight for a while because I love. That's my favorite second shot in golf. Um, and then obviously seventeen and eighteen with the history of you know, Watson chipping in for birdie there, left of seventeen, eighteen. There's just so much has happened on that hole. Uh, it's spectacular. So um, that's that's why. And in fact, I think that's that's the one event that I've played the most uh, in my career. And uh, so, of all the golf courses we play, I think I've played more rounds on that than anywhere else. And and um, wow. I love it. As a junior golfer growing up in Southern California, our state amateur, um, the match play was at Pebble, and I played it uh, a few times. And so it. It's a, um, it is a special place. I love it. It, it. it may not always be in the perfect condition, um, but it doesn't matter. And if I play in, if it's 78, sunny and calm, or it's 55, windy and raining, it doesn't make a difference. It's the coolest place on earth. Um, <laughs> and as far as the, the uh, St. Andrews, yeah, I, I, um, I went over in two, I think it was 2000, and tried to, to qualify over there. And I played a place called London Lynx, and it's a, um, just a traditional, you know, Scottish golf course, and it was really cool. And I played really poorly and, and didn't make it. So, but I I, I uh, contemplated: do I go over to uh, to St Andrews and look at it, or do I not? Do I wait to get in? And and um, I decided to go. And so I, I went over and, and walked on the putting green and walked on the first tee. And so I walked one. I went over to 17 green, took a look at that green and then walked down 18 and then left. So all I've seen of that is, you know, those three holes. And uh, it was special. I took tons of pictures and and uh, enjoyed that. But I'd, I'd love to get to go back. 
I'd love to obviously play in an open championship, but um, right. I think it'd be fun to do a guy's golf trip, take son. And, yeah. And uh, I mean, if I could take my dad, that'd be that'd be pretty cool. But um, I'm not sure that trip is going to happen anytime soon. But it would be really neat if it did. Yeah. No. Absolutely, it would. Good for you. I hope that comes true for you. Paul, uh, before we let you go, just uh, how can our listeners follow you, whether it's online or uh, on social media? Yeah, I'm on uh, I'm on uh, Twitter. It's um, at Paul Stankowski. Um, the uh, my business that I'm, that I'm uh, I started a year and a half ago. Uh, it's it's at Francis Edward underscore. We do custom uh, exotic belts um, and and other kind of belts, but all custom stuff and. Uh, Francis, what am I on uh, Facebook as well? I think I'm just Paul Stankowski, I guess. But I don't get on that a whole lot. But Twitter is where I, I like to, to connect with, with folks. Um, it's a fun, it's a fun uh, outlet and, well, the news outlet for me. But it's also fun to, just to connect with people that you typically wouldn't get a chance to connect with otherwise. Right. Um, Absolutely. So that's that. But, yeah. So that's right. great. Thanks for having me on, Chris. I appreciate that. Yeah, please. Thank you for uh, for joining me, Paul. Thanks for taking time out of your morning. You're fantastic. I hope you'll come back on again sometime. A lot more I'd love to get into with you. Uh, just didn't have the opportunity or the time today, but we'd love to have you come back and uh, and uh, join us again sometime. Anytime. You got my number. Just give me a shout. All right. Thank you, Paul. Best of luck to you and your family. Have a great uh, rest of your Sunday. Thanks, Chris. You too. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Great time. Great guy, Paul Stankowski. Definitely got to have him back on the show with us. We've got our next guest, Matt Adams, hanging online. Going to get to Matt uh, right after this very brief uh, station break. This is Joe Lajanusa from Thursday Night Tailgate, and you're listening to On the Tee with Chris Mascaro on the Armed Forces Radio Network. Now joining me is Matt Adams. I'm sure you all know Matt is the host of the Fairways of Life show on the PGA Tour channel on uh, Sirius XM. Uh, but Matt has also been featured on the BBC, ESPN, the Golf Channel, PGA Tour Entertainment, European Tour Productions, and now the Back Nine Network. He's also the author of ten books, including uh, several in the Chicken Soup for the Soul book and his Fairways of Life book, which is a fantastic read. Uh, he's interviewed virtually every living legend, and uh, he's been called the best interviewer in the game of golf, and I certainly agree with that. Matt, thanks for taking time out of your morning to be next on the tee with me. Thanks for you. Uh, fantastic. Thank you for being here. So, Pleasure. Matt, let's let's start at the, at the beginning. When did you fall in love with the game of golf? You know, I, I'm not even sure if I can put a finger on it, to tell you the truth. I mean, I do know that it was through my father, so many of us, that I was introduced to the game. And I think I saw his passion for the sport and how much he loved it. And that kind of, you know, if you will, permeated through me the same way as, as generally, you know, we like the teams that our fathers like and so forth. And, uh, you know, as a kid, dabbled around like, like so many with uh, doing some caddying. And, you know, I can remember, you know, if I had, I couldn't, I couldn't exactly want that. Like most people, that first time you actually hit a chapter and the ball goes as you hoped it would with whatever club from driver down to putter, that was probably the moment where I was hooked for the rest of my life. Nice. Um, you're digitizing just a little bit on us, Matt, so just so you're aware. Um, oh, okay. You, you've done almost everything there is to do as a journalist, man, as a broadcaster around the game of golf. Anything still out there for you that you're dying to do? Um, you no, know, I, would, I wouldn't say that there's, that there's a piece missing, per se. I'd love the, the path. The, the interesting thing for me, Chris, was that you know, the, the, the books that you mentioned and the broadcasting certainly draws a lot of attention, but I still don't really think of myself as a broadcaster. I'm, when you get right down to it, I'm just a golf guy. I've, I've worked in golf operations for the last 15 years, and, and the 10 or 15 years before that, I was in golf equipment manufacturing. So right. I, I still don't really feel like a broadcaster, to tell you the truth, and I'm, I'm surprised that I get the opportunities that I get. I love doing it, and so... To me, it's one of those classic stories, I think, where I do what I do every day now, and I honestly never feel like I'm working. I, always, I, I kind of feel like one day someone's going to turn the, the light on and I'm going to scurry back under the refrigerator. It's just <laughs> one, of those, 
you know, one of those feelings that's just uh, unbelievable that that I get to do what I do. I don't, I don't know how else to phrase it. Um, I read in your in in your book, Matt. You wrote that golfers, including Walter Hagen, Bobby Jones, Ben Hogan, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Jack Nicklaus, Lee Trevino, Tom Watson, and Nick Faldo, among others, have all believed that good luck and bad luck come to all golfers in equal measure, as does adversity and opportunity. Champions fight through adversity and take advantage of the second chances, but major championships are not won by mere physical forces of luck. Now, you know, Jack Nicklaus has always said there is only a handful of guys who even think they're capable of winning majors, and on Sundays he always thought, they're going to choke and I'm not. What do you think the difference is for those who actually are able to go forth and win majors? Well, I think majors... Because because that whole book was was done as a reflection of life, I think that majors come in different forms. First of all, I think that for for most people, they don't realize that they already are major champions, and and that's that's what this that whole question and that whole paragraph that you read my book relates to. It relates to self belief, and through self belief, you can perform because you have confidence in your ability on that stage. And I happen to believe, Chris, my philosophy is that if you have raised a child, if you have been married, if you've run a business and people have depended on you for a paycheck, if your business has succeeded, if your business has failed, if you if you've convalesced yourself or a loved one through a sickness, if someone has died in your life, if you've gone through any of these things individually, any one of those things are so much more important than what you do in any golf tournament, regardless of what that golf tournament is, a major championship or otherwise. So from that perspective, my personal conviction and belief is that everybody already is a major champion if you've gone through any of life's valleys and and you've come out on the other side of it, any of life's challenges and come out on the other side of it. And So I think that in the three-foot putts of life, that the first thing everybody has to do is to say to themselves, remember who you are, remember where you've been, and that this opportunity to make this putt on whatever stage it's on, major championship or otherwise, will not define your life and who you are. It's not going to boil down to what the, these few feet that lie before you. Remember who you are and make the putt. And that's, that's really where, where I think that comes down to it. And, and that's, why I was, that's what I was talking about in that passage with the book, that major champions – come in various forms, in many different forms, but the one key attribute that they all possess is a conviction that they deserve to be there, that they deserve the success that lies before them, and they get the job done when they need to get it done. That's fantastic. That's great stuff right there, Matty. I listen to you and uh, Dominic every morning on my drive to work. I was so thrilled for you recently when they made you a a member at Bally Bunyan when you guys were over in Ireland. What do things like that mean to you? Uh, Well, I would would revert back to the comment I made earlier where I wait for someone to turn the light on and I'll scurry back under the refrigerator. Uh, Bally Bunyan to me is one of the great cathedrals of the game. And simply being on the grounds of places such as that I feel so incredibly honored and privileged just to be there. And the fact that they would choose to make me a member still blows me away. I didn't have words for it then. I don't have words for it now that would adequately describe my emotions, Chris. Uh-huh. But it was, uh, it was something, uh, it is something very, very special. Because you've had the opportunity, you've done so much, Matt, when you look at your calendar for what's coming up and what's on the horizon in the next, you know, weeks or months, is there something that, you know, that still gets you excited every single day or something that you're looking forward to? God bless, I can't believe I'm about to do this in a week or two. Yeah, I mean, I do feel that way every single day with, with my show. I, I've, I've, you know, they always say that when you, and this is the fifth year of doing it on a daily basis, and I think our eighth year of doing it at large, and, you know, I've always heard people that are in any realm of entertainment, and they say, when the day comes, athlete or otherwise, when the day comes and you dread what lies before you, it's time to get out. And maybe that, that applies to everything, but certainly in the field right. of entertainment sports, it certainly does. I've yet to feel that way. I, I still wake up in the morning, and, and I'm really excited about going on the air and really excited about the opportunity to kind of share a common passion with people. But in terms of this year, 2014, the Ryder Cup is the event for me that, that absolutely stands uh, as a beacon. And, and we have 
all kinds of great golf that's already taken place and certainly will to the balance of the year. But that Ryder Cup is just something different. And I actually do the world a broadcast for it. You, you, in fact, you'll hear it this year in the United States because Sirius XM will carry it. But normally you don't hear the, the stuff that I do internationally, but this time you will. And it, so it's everybody, everybody else on the broadcast team is from Great Britain, and you know, I'm, the, I'm the sole and lone American voice on it, which is fun and exciting in and of itself. But that's the event for me that happens above everything else. Assigned by currently uh, making the rounds on social media is from a story that uh, Paul Azinger told you about a bet he and the late Payne Stewart had at a practice round when they were playing against Ben Crenshaw and Phil Mickelson. A great story. Do you mind sharing it with our listeners here on the Armed Forces Radio Network? The bottom line was that they were playing a game that gave the opportunity for the competitor with the advantage to double the bet, and you could either accept the, the double down or you could refuse it. If you refuse it, you have to guarantee them the amount that you owed. Well, you're talking about professional golfers, and this was about 20 years ago, and it was Crenshaw and Mickelson against Payne Stewart and Paul Azinger, and the, the, the bet was at $800, and they doubled down because Mickelson had like a 15-foot putt at the 18th at Bay Hill, downhill, moving to the right towards the water, an incredibly difficult putt to, to, uh, to make it. And Payne Stewart said, I'm out, which means that he was, he was going to pay the $800. He's done. He's, he's capped off his, his losses. And Paul Azinger said, no way, he's not making that putt. He said, I'm taking the, the bet, which meant double or nothing, basically. And so right. when he did that, he said to Bill Mickelson, just go ahead and putt it, bitch. And when he said that, that's the piece of the interview, as you know, that has gone viral around the world. And, you know, it's funny. Sirius XM is, is what, 200 sports channels, I think? And they have these SoundCloud bits where they send out interviews. Well, the all-time biggest SoundCloud comes, it was, it was uh, an NFL quarterback. It's some 20,000 hits. That story with, with Paul Azinger is already up around 15,000. So doesn't that show the power of, A, a good story, and the power of golf, that here we are in the top four or five all-time in, in hits from people interested in stories, and it's our little sport of golf, which I think is really cool. And the bottom line with that story was, of course, Mickelson split the hole, and, and Paul Azinger had to peel off $1,600 on the 18th green. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's a fantastic story. Yeah, I've I've probably gone back and listened to the soundbite of that two or three times myself. It's fantastic. Awesome. I've retweeted. Yeah, it's a great story. Matt, like I mentioned at the top, you've spoken with you know all of the living legends. I've been doing this show for a very short time, and I had the opportunity to talk with Gary Player and Billy Casper right before the Masters. First, I was nervous that Mr. Player wasn't going to answer the phone when we called him. Then when the phone was ringing, I was more nervous that he would answer. As, mm-hmm. has the thought of you know approaching or talking to any of the living legends at some point made you nervous? Mr. Nicholas and Mr. Palmer have both made me nervous when I've interviewed them in person. I don't tend to get nervous about interviews over the telephone, but when I was when I was in their company, those two guys made me nervous. In fact, and they still do. It's not like it happened once and I'm over it, but. I was at the Memorial Tournament one year, and there were a couple years where they were having a skins game. I'm not sure if you remember that. Yeah. And Jack Nicklaus was out there. In fact, he was paired this, this day with Phil Mickelson and a number of other players, and I don't mean to diminish or disrespect the other players, but you know my focus was on Mr. Nicklaus and Phil Mickelson, and I was sent out to do the on-course play-by-play. All right, so I'm out there. And my producer, Jeremy Davis, at the time said in my earpiece, we're coming off of part three, and he said, go interview Mr. Nicholas. Well, this is during the broadcast while we're on the course live, and I walked up and I said, Mr. Nicholas, may I speak with you for a second? He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. So we're walking and talking to the next tee, and I can't remember how it went down, but I remember this much about it. I was so nervous, I completely locked up. So whatever I was supposed to be doing at that point to guide this interview on its path went wayward. And Jack Nicholas, he's such a good person and an in-touch human being that he recognized what was going on. And I don't know whether he saw my name tag in advance or whatever it was. The greatest golfer that's ever played takes his arm and he puts it around my shoulder and he goes, Matt, 
here we are standing on the on the tee box and blah 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 blah. And he described the scene, and he filled the time gap so perfectly it, with enough time for me to kind of get my bearings again and take the interview from there. And you know that's wow. the type of thing. I don't know. Maybe some people would be embarrassed to tell that story. I'm not embarrassed at all about it. Here here was Jack Nicholas that was so in tune with another human being and their plight, which, which was self, self-assessed on my part, because I was just too nervous to talk to him, and he helped me through it. And I thought, you know, that said a, just a world about who he is a, as a man. I thought it was a really cool experience. That is a very cool experience. Good for you. Good for him for, for recognizing that. That's a wonderful story. I'm Speaking telling of you, wonderful... Chris, you're doing, you're doing this long enough now to know that there are a lot of people that, that you would interview and even if they wouldn't mean to do it to you, there's a lot of people that would just leave you hanging in that situation. They, they, wouldn't, feel, they wouldn't be able to sense it, nor would they feel an obligation on their part to, to help you out of the hole that you had just dug. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more about that, Matt. You, you have a wonderful relationship with Mr. Ben Wright. You know, it's, it's great to hear him on your show. I miss him broadcasting, especially at the majors. How did the two of you become friends? He had been on my show a couple of times, and as you're finding now with the program that you're hosting, a lot of doing what we do is simply, and I guess it's, a, it's again, another success in life. It's just about having the intestinal fortitude to ask. And I remember I was sitting at home at one point, and I had a personal conviction about Ben Wright, and my personal conviction is that a man's life should be judged by the balance, the weight of what he has done, and not by a flashpoint, good or bad. And in right. his case, Ben Wright got himself in trouble, and, and, and in an imbalance in terms of the reaction, because it was a politically correct move instead of being one that was, that was balanced and prudent, he was banished by CBS. And the way it works in big-time media is that if you've been sent off to the wilderness Nobody else is supposed to ever take you from the woods. You're supposed to stay banished because this big media entity sent you away. And generally, the way that that works, although it's a silent rule in the industry, is that the reason why no one will go to help you is because secretly nobody wants to burn the bridge of working for that media entity someday. And so I looked at it from the standpoint of saying, you know, I thoroughly love what I do. And, and I have a fundamental belief that you don't live your life in fear of what might happen. So I wrote a letter to, to Ben Wright, and I, I said in the letter, I'm telling you straight up what I said to him, I said, I think you have been banished long enough. People want to hear from you, and I would love to give you that forum. Would you be interested in joining me every week on my show? And he came back, and this shocked me. I didn't expect it. He came back and said, I would love to do that. And that's how it launched. And now it's just, you know, we have no clue what we're going to talk about before he comes on the air. Dominic tells me he's on hold. I come back from a break, and away we go. And I've always felt like the highest form of what we do, Chris, I'm talking about both of us now, the highest form of what we do is to, commit, is to make an interview sound like it's a conversation around a table having a beer at some pub. Right. And that's all we do with Ben Wright. We just chat. Yeah, no, I agree 100% with that. That is, that's how we launched. You know how I got started when you know on the on the football side with our show Thursday Night Tailgate is uh, one of my best friends, and I thought, you know what, why not why not interview NFL players and just make it be like you're sitting, you know, at a sports bar or around, you know, a table somewhere in a hotel, you know, lobby or whatnot, just you know, chatting. Over a beer. Yep. What What are those conversations like? Because, you know, you often hear people say, boy, I'd love to be a fly on the wall listening to so-and-so and so-and-so talk. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's what launched that show, and that's what got me over here. You're exactly right on, Matt. I think the, the thing, the difference is that radio is a conversation with versus television tends to be talking at. And even though, it, wherever someone's listening to this today, if it's on their computer or if they're streaming it in their car or wherever it is or, or someplace around the globe, it, the highest form of what we do is to make them feel like they're part of the conversation. And with television, I think that's really, really hard to do, having done both mediums. Television tends more to be a, a pontification, that I'm talking at you and I'm impressing upon you what my opinion is, versus in radio, I think if it's done well, we're never really sure what the right answer is. Our, our job is, is to throw a bunch of ideas out there and, and see what sticks and what gets the reaction. Right. 
You are you're a fantastic golf historian, Matt. Is there a player that you think doesn't get enough credit for his or her yeah, contribution Walter, Walter to the game? Hagen. Walter Hagen. Yeah? Why? Well, first of all, he won 11 major championships. And when you consider the fact that the fourth major, as we know it now, then was called the Augusta National Invitational, didn't even start until he was already in the twilight of his career. Then you consider that he won 11 majors on top of that. Then you consider that he won the Western Open, for example, six times, when at the time that was considered a major of his era. When you consider that he used to go over to Great Britain and compete in the Open Championship and win at a time when that was a massive effort to get over there. You're talking about ocean liners and weeks and months and dedication of the same. Here's the piece that most people don't know about Walter Hagen. If it had not been for Walter Hagen, there would not be a Ryder Cup. Now, most people believe that the credit for the Ryder Cup should go to Samuel Ryder. Samuel Ryder was a sponsor. He was not the visionary of the Ryder Cup. One of the visionaries of the Ryder Cup was Walter Hagen. In fact, Walter Hagen put his own money into it when it started. If he had not done that, it would not have ever even A, started nor lasted. So that's a piece of history that people generally don't know at all about Walter Hagen. So not only is he underrated in terms of what he did as a competitor, he's underrated in terms of what he did with the Ryder Cup, and he's completely underrated with the vision that he had because he was the first true touring pro. Now, some would say, no, wait a minute, Harry Varden was the first true touring pro. Harry Varden used to play these money games when he would go on tour. Walter Hagen understood that people with means – are wanting and willing to spend time and money with you if you could perform magic with a golf ball. He was the first pro by modern standards, and he was the guy that got it all by himself. And then the last thing that that makes him distinctive by comparison to today's standards is that he was the first that understood the psychology of the game in, in a very complex way. In other words, you know, people know all the funny stories about Hagen where even though he didn't have the honor, he would walk up onto the tee box with a club that was entirely too much or entirely not enough for the task that lay before him. And the other player would go, hey, Walter, it's, it's, it's my honor. Oh, oh, sorry about that. The other player would come up and they'd either fly the green or hit it way short because they saw the club that he, he approached the green with. He'd slip it back <laughs> in the back, take the proper one, and be on his way. He also was really good when he was competing against particularly a young player where he'd say to that young player, hey, Chris, you're really playing well here. It looks like you've got this thing wrapped up. Listen, when when it's all said and done, I think you should go on tour with me in the spring when I go to fill in the blank here around the country or around the world. So he he understood that by casting your mind forward to the rewards of a task not yet earned, it throws a player out of the here and now. And so he understood this mentality. Hagen would have when he would have a bad hole, and he would have a lot of them because he was, he was very wayward off the tee, very wayward. He had no clue where it was going off the tee. And his second shots weren't always the greatest either, but when he had to close around the green, he always got it done. And Hagen had an attitude with that was when, when these bad holes would pop up, instead of seeing it as a sign of his mortal demise, he would look upon it as saying, boy, I'm glad I got that out of the way, because he knew on average he was going to have a couple of those every round. So that's just another example of, of his mental fortitude. Right. So, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that, it, that Walter Hagen is the guy that doesn't get the credit he deserves. Yeah, sounds like it. Now, you've had the great John Durr on your show several times. One, one day you're going to be our generation's John Durr. Do you ever stop and ponder your own place in golf history? No, no, I'm not too worried about what I do with it. I mean, really, my, my role is to be a – I think, a chariot for for our combined passion for the game of golf. And I'm incredibly honored, as I mentioned, that I get a chance to spend time with the listeners. I get a chance to to do features on the history of the game. And I get a chance to speak to the people that actually authored the game on the links themselves. And and that's that's more than enough for me. I really, really enjoy it. I, I had had a conviction for so long, Chris, that there was this huge, latent, untapped, passion for the sport 
that was floating out there. And even when we started these shows on a daily basis, there was doubt. There was doubt from the highest levels. They were kind of like, fine, we'll, we'll do it, we'll give it a shot, but we'll see what happens. Well, what's happening is that it's proving that it's real, it, and it's really happening, and people are tuning in every day where we mostly talk about golf, but as you know from listening to this show, we'll talk about anything else that pops up into our head too and have, have fun about that. It's just, I, I just think that I really believe, and this is another subject, but I really believe that golf is mismeasured in that if you are, you know, you're a football guy too, right? Football right. is not measured by how many people go out and throw a football or kick a football or pass a football or, or block a, someone that's trying to get at your quarterback. It's measured by a fan base predominantly against those that watch it on television. In golf, for whatever reason, it's a sport that's measured by participation. So we always hear this number that there's, there's 25, 26 million golfers in the United States, and I say that number is dead wrong because that number is based on participation. What happens to your father or your father-in-law that doesn't play anymore, but he watches golf on TV, he buys golf products, he, he really consumes the product, he reads the websites, all the rest, but he doesn't play anymore for whatever reason, time, money, physical, whatever it is. He doesn't get out on the golf course. Those people are completely falling through the cracks. And it's been my contention, and I'll continue to preach it until it hits home, that golf is mismeasured compared to the other sports in the country and i think that it's way down on the list because of that fact now if we want to measure for example nascar's got 75 million fans in the official uh demographics that they put out do 75 million people drive a stock car so and that <laughs> i just that, i know i went on a side on that one but it's something i that's okay about. yeah so but why is that why is golf measured that way and other sports aren't golf still fights an image of who it is and the image is completely outdated. If you look, at, for example, at the data from the 2013 uh, rounds of golf played in the United States, 90% of those rounds are public golf. And of those 90% rounds, the average tee, uh, greens fee paid was $28. So to the, to the thought that, there is, uh, that golf is too expensive, that right there dispenses the no- – and I'm not talking about golfers. Golfers know. Golfers get it. I'm talking about people outside the sport. Golf as an industry in the United States alone employs more than 2 million people. It does more than $76 billion in direct economic impact. All of these things about golf, all of these positive things and all the things that I was just talking to you about – they get downplayed because golf doesn't look like a game for the masses. So politically, it does not have the support that the other, that the other sports have. And I mean politically in its broadest spectrum in terms of how right. you define that. So it's easy, you know, for example, like right now, if the president of the United States plays a lot of golf, people dissent about it. And it's been that way with presidents going all the way back to Taft. When they, they almost have to keep secret the fact that they play golf. But they don't have to keep secret the fact that they watched a basketball game that night. So it's just, it's one of those things, it's an obstacle that we collectively have to work to overcome. Mm-hmm. Just a couple more before we let you run, Matt. What, when you look back, what experience, you know, whether it's, you know, on the course, you know, interviewing somebody or what have you, what experience, uh, you know, continues to bring a smile to your face when you reflect back on it? Uh, 2010, I was in Europe. A, a buddy of mine lives in uh, Holland, and we were playing a, a great Harry Colt golf course that he belongs to called Eindhoven. Fascinating place because it was taken over by the Germans in the Second World War. Because I asked him, so how did your clubhouse, everything about this city was bombed. In fact, the, the Americans bombed Eindhoven because they didn't have GPS in those days, and they <laughs> thought it was the German industrial city. They bombed the wrong city, but that happened. You know, that was the way it went. So the city's decimated. It's, it's, it's crumbled. So everything as a result is brand new except this old clubhouse. And I said to him, how did this old clubhouse survive during the war? And he said, because the Germans occupied this golf course, and the officers used to play it. And they used to use the clubhouse as one of their offices. So it's just fascinating stuff like that. So we fly right. over to Andrews. It's the 2010 Open. And we had to get over there early because, uh, if you remember, the Netherlands was against Spain in the finals of the World Cup. So we get to... Um, Scores Pub, you know, across the street from, from the 18th Green at, at the old course. And, of course, it's packed. There's a couple stools at a table, and there's some guys sitting there. And, and you know, my friend was eager to watch the scene. He said, do you mind if we sit here? 
And they said, no, no, sit down, go ahead. So we sit down with these two fellows. It turns out that one is the director and the other is the producer for ESPN's dedicated coverage of the Open. And wow. the guy, and it's John, he, he turns to me and says, well, what are you doing here? I said, oh, I'm broadcasting the Open. I work uh, Sirius XM, plus I do a European tour radio broadcasts or the world broadcasts, et cetera. And he said, really? He said, do you have any time this week? And I said, yeah. I, I mean, between my radio assignments, I've got tons of time. And he said, I wonder if you would mind coming by and hosting our ESPN dedicated coverage. He said, it'd either be the, the, the first hole, the road hole, 17th, or the 18th hole. I said, sure. So I ended up doing that week, and I'm, I'm still shaking my head when I think back on it now. I ended up hosting... I think 10 hours of live coverage, wow. and, and here I was. I can remember the, the first day. It, I had to go in because Jim Kelly and I think it was Tom Weisskopf were taking a break. And the guy said, well, go in this tower. You're going to be covering the, the road hole. So I walk into the room, and there's nobody left. They had taken their break. Boom, they're out of there. So I walk in. There's a headset sitting on a, on a stool. I pick it up, and I put it on, and I hear a voice in the E30 says, if you're out there, go. So I decided to play it straight down the middle. I could see in the monitor what the camera was shooting, and I said, you're looking live at the road hole at the old course, the 137th Open Championship, and blah, blah, blah. And off I went. That's how my broadcasting, you know, television play-by-play of golf kind of kicked off on, on you know, the network level. <laughs> That's the experience that I – and it, for me, it's, it's always been one, and it still is, as I speak to you this morning, Chris, where I shake my head just like I would if we were a couple of buddies out having a drink or playing on a golf course, and I'd say, can you believe this stuff? And right. that, that was the experience that, uh, I mean, that I, last year, last two years at the Open, believe it or not, my assignment at the Open Championship on Sunday is what they call a chaser. And that means that you've got your two primary broadcast groups, and they're going to go out with the leader and usually the, the second, the penultimate group, because those, that's where the, the winners usually come from. Well, last year and the year before, as the chaser, I ended up with Ernie Els at Litham and Phil Mickelson last at Muirfield, and it was just incredible. I was working with uh, Gordon Brand Jr., a two-time Ryder Cupper for, for Europe, and mm-hmm. you know Phil went on his tear, and we knew something. We knew what was going on. You feel it when you're on the golf course. You can just feel what's happening. And right. so we're on 18. He hits his tee shot safely on 18, and we're getting in position behind the green. And I said to Gordon, I said, Gordon, I'm going to set you up, and I'm going to get the heck out of the way so you can close this thing. And he said, no. He said, no, Matty. He says, he's your man. He said, you're doing this. And it was just such an incredible honor to call the winning shot of the Open Championship with Phil Mickelson. And the interesting thing about it was where we had a position because of the size of the gallery, we were right if you're facing the green, we were we were to the left, above that bunker that was over there, to just right of that bunker that was over there. So I was probably about 10 feet from Bones and Phil's bag, and, you know, right on top of the green. So we, we speak in no very much hush tones. And it was amazing watching the interaction between Phil and Bones because they could not look at each other. They could not make eye contact or else they would have become, they, they would have just got too emotional. And to, you could actually feel the tension there the emotional tension between them as this whole thing was playing out. And it was, it was just a fascinating experience. So I don't know. I guess I got a lot of them. Yeah, you really do. That's great. That's great stuff. Um, one more before we let you go. And, and goodness knows I could talk to you forever. Um, your son CJ is in the uh, latest Godzilla movie. And I don't think I'm giving too much away here by saying he doesn't get eaten which has to be a great relief to you and his mother. But uh, can you share the experience of uh, watching your son up on the big screen? Well, I mean, my wife, Donna, his mom knew. She was, she was with him on the set. See, I don't go on the set because I'm too busy with our broadcast schedule and, and on the road. So when I saw the, the movie for the first time, which was uh, a week ago Saturday, I honestly didn't know if he got eaten or not. I, I mean, I kid about that when I this week, but I had no idea what happened to this character because I don't read his scripts in advance. He's done, what, four movies now and Chicago Fire TV series, and he's got a bunch more that are kind of, you know, once you do a big film like that, it's kind of like winning a major and opportunities start to queue up for you. But right. the key thing is with Siege, he's 14 years old, and the key thing with him is that I use Arnold Palmer as the example all the time. And I say to him, I said, CJ, you have a right to protect your dignity, 
your safety, and your privacy. But if someone wants a moment of your time, an autograph, a photograph, just to chat with you a little bit, that is not a burden. And the moment it becomes a burden to you instead of the honor that it is, that's when it's time to get out of this business. That's when we're done doing what we're doing. So he is so good at understanding that and being respectful for people and giving them the time that they need. You know, Mr. Palmer has this way that when, in, when you're in his company, he makes you feel like you are the most important thing to him at that fraction of a second or, or a few minutes that you spend with the man. And that's what I hope that I can impart to my boy. And it comes down to even simple things like, you know, people are asking CJ for his autograph all the time, and I harp on him. Make sure when they get home they can read that so they can say that's CJ asked. Right. Because if you're going to scribble it out, it, it's, I believe it's disrespectful to them and it makes no sense at all because they don't know what the heck it says anyway. Because generally people who ask for autographs are asking from, from a lot of people at the same time. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting experience. It's, it's one that I think he has in good balance. I, I tell him all the time that what you do doesn't make you better than another human being. I could not care less that he does films, and I mean that in, in, a, in a positive way. People tell me all the time, you must be very proud of your son. I said, I'm proud of who he is. Uh, just like my right. other boy, I'm proud of who he is. I, I, I really couldn't care less if he ever made another movie again. But when he makes the movies, I want him to approach in the same way anybody else approaches the job that they're, that they're proud to do. And you do the best darn job you possibly can, and you get in there prepared. Don't go in there with any set presumption that you're so important that you can coast it or you can call it in, because that's disrespectful to everybody else that's working there, too. That's fantastic stuff. Matt, thank you so much for taking time out of your morning to join me. Tell our folks, you know, everyone should know, but tell our folks how they can, you know, follow you on Twitter, find you online, Facebook, that sort of thing. Uh, let's see. Uh, fairwaysoflife.com is my website. At Matt Adams, F-O-L is Twitter. And, I mean, those two are probably the two that will get you set on your path. Right. Right, well, Matt, it, is, it has certainly been my honor to share this time with you. Thank you for being, A, generous with your time, and, B, getting up and uh, letting me be a part of, uh, of your Sunday morning. It's, uh, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I hope you'll join me again sometime. So much to get into with you. You've got so many great stories. We'd love to have you come back and tell more of them and share more of them with our audience. I'd love to, Chris. You're doing a very good job. Again, you're, you're doing precisely what I was just talking about. You put together a program that celebrates a common passion so that people, wherever they are, can share this thing and go, isn't this great? We all love this game of golf, and we have this opportunity to kind of sit around and talk about it with, with Chris and his guests every week. So keep it up. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And thanks. Uh, please share my thanks with Dominic as well for sharing uh, or helping uh, arrange the interview. It's been fantastic. Thanks yeah, again we'll for being here, and all, all the best to you and your family. I very much appreciate it. Looking forward to next time. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Wow, folks, what a wonderful morning it has been. Paul Stankowski, great, uh, great interview, great to share some time with him. Matt Adams was absolutely outstanding. He knocked it out of the park. So many wonderful stories that Matt has to share. I can't thank both of those guys enough for joining me, with being, for being outstanding guests, for getting up early on a Sunday uh, to be uh, a part of Next on the Tee with me. Um, just an incredible, uh, incredible uh, last hour. Please. Come back, join us every Sunday morning at this time, 9 a.m. We appreciate you for listening the most. Please check us out online as well, nextonthetea.net. You can stay up to date with uh, who our upcoming guests are, plus you can stream or download any of our archive shows for free from there. You can also download us free from iTunes, from Spreaker.com, TuneIn, and uh, Stitcher as well. Please also check us out online on, uh, on our Facebook page. Give us a like. That's important to us, too. You can uh, share your stories with us there. You, if you've got questions that you want us to share with some of our upcoming guests, please post them on there and let us know how we're doing. It's, uh, it's very important to us. Uh, until next week, hit them straight, my friends.
are happening at your friendly neighborhood Safeway. Stop by and see all the things that make a supermarket just better, like new low everyday prices on family favorites. Shop with your club card and pick up bananas for an incredible 48 cents a pound. And for an easy, delicious dinner, get whole roasted chicken for only $4.98. Bigger selections, friendlier smiles, lower prices. Safeway, it's just better. And this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, 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 and step no change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates, home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers.